Father in heaven, we're thankful again for this beautiful day. We're thankful for the, the reality that you desire that we have life and we have it more abundantly. And we just ask that you would help us to understand how to have that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to kind of shoot through environmental influences here. I've just left one slide on here uh, so that we can get to biology, soil biology. Somebody asked me when I was coming in how I came to be doing what I'm doing, so maybe I'll just give you a, a little quick rundown of that. I, I was exposed to the Adventist church when I was 25 years old, and uh, the thing that blew me away when I, was the health message. You know, I had been asking questions, like, I grew up in the Church of Christ, I've been asking questions about why do they... Why do the Jews worship on Sabbath and the Christians worship on Sunday? And why does Easter not fall on Passover? And I knew enough about some things. And, and did, what about this eternal torment? That, that just didn't sit well with me with, uh, uh, with a loving God. It just didn't match. So I was, these questions were, you know, the Holy Spirit, he's putting these thoughts in your mind and everything like that. And uh, I was at the dentist having some work done on my teeth and, and there was a card there for the Bible stories, you know, the, the Cole Porter stuff and I sent that in and anyway, to speed the process along, I got uh, the Spirit of Prophecy books, the Bible stories, I got the health books, I got everything. And, but I was especially blown away by the health message. I mean, this, the spiritual message was, was pretty profound too and it answered a lot of those questions for me. So I decided that, and I didn't know why this stuff wasn't taught in public school. I said, somebody ought to be teaching this stuff. Of course, I was a little naive at that point about reality of things. And so anyway, I went back to college. I was going to study and go, to, go ahead and go into medicine and um, do an MD-PhD so I could do public health and, and educate people and everything. So I went back to school and... I took a, I grew up around agriculture, so I was familiar with it. We spent our, our summers, me and my brother spent summers on one family's farm or relative's farm or another somewhere. Um, so I knew how bad it honestly was, and I really wasn't interested, and I wanted to do something else. But So this, this kind of thing wasn't on my mind. Anyway, I went back to school and started studying, you know, doing all the finish up undergraduate stuff so I could apply to medical school. Of course, I'm, I'm 27 years old now, and that's a little late to be starting that process, but uh, better figure it was late than, better late than never. And I took a, an agriculture class, organic gardening class, while I was there. It was the last agriculture class taught at La Sierra University. The farm closed down that year. Uh, but the way the man taught the class, it just, it, it just impressed Something. I mean, it just did something to me, and I started thinking, well, maybe there is a better way to do this. And but anyway, I was still in the process of planning on going to medical school, and God just impressed me very strongly. I want you to be a farmer, not a doctor. And I said, no, thank you. <laughs> but that that kept being impressed upon me and I've and the the clincher was I was planning on doing a PhD in public health and so that year they shut down the public health program the PhD public health program at Loma Linda and I took that as the final okay Lord I get it 
And so I figured, well, I'll, I'll, I went home and I was figuring, well, I'll, I'll look at a school to go back to study soil science and agronomy. And uh, God just made it very clear to me, no, I will teach you. I don't want you going back and, and doing it. I will teach you. And I said, okay, we'll start teaching because I didn't know. I was around agriculture, but look, people in agriculture farm, but that doesn't mean they know anything about soil and, and, and that type of thing. Um, anyway, I went to Wildwood. I studied natural therapies there and, and to see what might come out of that and everything. And then after I got done there, I met my wife there and then we got married and uh, a couple, uh, about a year later. And we moved to a place that was about halfway between my parents and her parents, far enough to have your own space, close enough to be able to visit. And, uh, then after doing that for about a year, we decided we really wanted to do something to, in, to, to work with the mission of the church and everything. And I'll skip some of the steps that happened, but I wound up at Adidine Valley after a few other stopovers. And a man who knew Stephen Joel Meyer, they had, had been acquainted with Neil Kinsey, and they had invited him to do a, a basic training course at Eden Valley there. This is before he became so popular that he couldn't do it anymore. We actually got him twice, and then after that his book came out, and it was impossible to get him to, to do it anymore. But I was sitting, I remember sitting in that class listening to him talk, and very distinctly God said, this is what I want you to learn. And so 25 years later, that's where I am. Because I didn't know, I didn't know. I was reading about stuff and everything like that. I knew about, you know, the main things about agriculture. But I didn't know the science of growing things. And most people don't. And so that's kind of the short version of it. There's more details to it and everything. And so that's where I, where I am. I, I believe God led me the right direction and gave me the right foundation, and I hope that you'll, you somewhat agree if, if what I'm saying makes any sense. So, okay, we'll go on to the, the environmental influences here. That's the other half of a growing system. You know, we live in a world where we don't have control over all the influences that impact our lives. We can, we can separate ourselves to some extent mentally, spiritually, emotionally, uh, even physically distance-wise. But God doesn't call us to isolation. That's not what separation is. Separation is, is placing yourself in a position where you're oriented to the truth rather than oriented to, the, to error. And, uh, but, you know, in spite of the fact that you try to separate yourself, you still live in a world. You may not be of it, but you live in it, and those influences are continually impacting you. And much of the time you had little say in, in what those effects are. You just have to try to endure them. And so you can't avoid this. And so what I'll say before I start going into any of these is that no matter what these impacts, like you can't stop the rain from falling. You can't stop the wind from blowing. You're not going to stop the, the sun from shining, your lack of sun shining when you're, you, you've got too much cloud cover. Uh, you're not going to stop all those vectors like we have here. You're not going to stop those from uh, visiting you. And so the real... The real way that you deal with these influences, which we'll just touch on here in a little, a little bit, is with the soil. It's the condition of the soil. The soil, like the character, will be what's going to buffer all of these influences. And these influences are getting more and more erratic, aren't they? 
they're getting more and more unstable and you need to be becoming more stable. You're becoming more anchored because that's what's going to keep you from being blown away by the wind and washed away by the rain. And, uh, and, and that's, that's how you deal with these difficulties. Now, obviously, you could build climate modification facilities, and, and we do a lot of that it's from low-tech stuff up to higher-tech stuff. We don't, my inclination has been to move further and further back to very simple means because I, I realize that people are just not going to have are going to be able to afford or, or, or maintain you know, super technical and expensive facilities. So uh, I appreciate seeing the, the high tunnels and the, the caterpillar tunnels and everything out there that, that allow people to buffer some of that influence. But in buffering that influence, you sometimes create other problems at the same time. Like for example, you put something in a greenhouse when it's cold to help keep it warm, but then when it gets warm, it gets hot in there and you put it in there or you put it in there to protect it from rain and then you don't put enough water on. I mean, that, you now you have the responsibility of making sure. So even the climate modifying practices have to be, you have to be mindful about what the impacts of those are too. So it still comes back to the soil and making sure that the soil is in, a, is in optimum condition to deal with the thing. So, so let's look at these weather is one of those influences, um, sunlight. And people say to me, sunlight, why would you have to worry about sunlight? In Colorado where we were, we were at 7,000 feet in elevation. We, in the summertime, we got 10,000 foot candles of light. Plants only need about three to 4,000 to grow. So we were getting almost uh, you know, two and a half to three times as much light as we needed. And I forgot to put the Spirit of Prophecy quote in there where she talks about you know, knowing the requirements of the plant um, protecting your nerves even from the sun. Do you remember that? I can't, I can't remember exactly how it goes now. It's, it's slipping my mind. But being mindful of all of these things. Well, in a greenhouse where we were diffusing the light and reducing it a little bit, our plants actually grew better than they do grew outside. We'd grow berries, berries uh, raspberry plants outside, and then they get four, <coughs> five feet tall. I had, uh, we had issues with water quality. We had sodium in our water and some bicarbonate, and we had to contend with that. But I had, I had a, a yellow raspberry that was an extra plant, and we had, had it growing in a bag, and it got out of the bag. The roots got out of the bag. It was sitting over on the end wall of the greenhouse inside. Most of my berries inside were taller, but they were having stress because of the, the sodium that was coming in on the water, the bicarbonate. Uh, but this one yellow raspberry plant, it got out of the bag, into the ground, and on the wall of the, the greenhouse, condensation would come down there on the outside and the inside and get, keep moisture right, right there. But we weren't irrigating it with that water. So it was basically getting clean water from, from just from the condensation. And that, that raspberry grew 12 feet tall. And the, the stem, the main part of the cane, was that big around on the bottom, and, and I'm not kidding, we got, about five or, we got about five or six pints of raspberries off of that one, that one plant. So what it was getting is it was getting the fertility we were putting down. It wasn't being damaged by the influence of a bad spirit, as I call it, the water quality was bad. And it was getting the, a reduced level of sunlight that diffused, it diffuses the light, the plastic would diffuse the light. And so when you're getting direct rays, it can raise the leaf temperature really high in a hurry. And so it's not, it really doesn't matter what the air temperature is to the plant. 
it matters. Have you ever been out, it's a cold day and you're out in the sun and you feel warm anyway? Well, that's the way the plant feels it. So it's, about, it's what the leaf temperature is, it's not what the air temperature is. And as long as the leaf is warm, then uh, it doesn't matter. But when you have direct radiation, it can heat, the, it can raise the temperature of those leaves up way beyond what they prefer it to be in a hurry. So when you diffuse it with the plastic, then that scatters the light and it comes from all different directions and, it, and it's, it's a lot more better light because you get more light into the canopy and in that case. Now, in Kentucky where we are now, where you get so much cloud cover, you can get so much cloud cover and a lot more gray days and everything, uh, you may not, you might not have that, well, you don't have that luxury. And so you need to be, you're better off growing outdoors in the full sunlight as much as you possibly can so we, I, we had uh, 23,000 square feet of greenhouse out in Colorado, which we sold. We changed the style of greenhouse that we're building in Kentucky, where the roof completely opens, sides co-op. So we can, in essence, grow outside, but we can, we can close the top if, if uh, we want to protect it from rain or, or too much solar intensity. We can raise sides and, and different, we can put different things together to try to create the most favorable conditions that we can with that. Uh, I like the Caterpillar tunnel out there, by the way, because you can move that. It's very simple. It's very inexpensive. And uh, you can actually pull that plastic all the way down to the side and allow those plants to be growing fully out in full sunlight. Or you can keep it up on the top, kind of like they had it, and just pull it up on the sides, and that kind of protects from rain if you need to do that. We're putting ours in so we can protect it from rain more than anything. So we can actually go in and, and prepare ground and, and and put stuff in. We've had a lot of issues because they've gotten, you know, almost record rainfall in Kentucky for two out of the last three years. And so trying to get anything done and having ground prepared and planted has been a challenge for us. So that's one of the reasons we're putting in is to protect it from rain, not from sun, and also to extend the season. We thought about growing um, year-round, and we do actually grow some stuff year-round for ourselves. But you have to have a break. If any of you farm for any length of time, you're, it's not a nine to five job. It's a sun up to sundown job, six days a week, most of the time when you're, when you're going. And one of the reasons agriculture is a good lesson book is because when, it, when the window of opportunity opens, you better be ready for it and be able to take advantage of it. It's not gonna wait for you to say, okay, I wanna just take care of this first and I'll be back. And you know, people that are used to a nine to five job where they can turn the light switch on and go to work and then turn it off and go home. And that's not how, that's not how life works in reality for, for a witnessing to people either. When the window of opportunity, we call our farm Golden Moment Farm because there's a quote in the Spirit of Prophecy about if you were to do anything, you'd do it at the golden moment. And then that's when the needle moves just enough to give you the indication you need to be ready to move and act. And, you know, timely action is, is, uh, will determine the success or the failure of the whole thing. And so that's why we named it that, that way. But agriculture teaches that, that to be in season, out of season, I mean, you need to be prepared to, to deal with the life as it happens, not, not in the time frame that you'd like it to happen. But anyway, uh, we decided to, that it was, we needed a break, we needed to have time off. We homeschool our kids, and one of the reasons we decided to do that, besides you know, the hazards of sending them to a, a public school was we're off in the winter and everybody else is on. 
And then when they're off in the summer, we're the busiest, busiest. And so we're able to, uh, we wanted to be able to take, even though we won't go year round, we, we, we produce about nine months out of the year. So by the time you get everything cleaned up, put to bed, you've got about a month and then you're getting everything out and planning and, and getting everything ready to go again. So you're about year round anyway. But that gave us at least a good month that we could, we could have off and do family things. And How much are you farming? In Colorado, we were only farming an acre. Um, we're going to do a little bit more here. We're gonna, we were thinking about five acres because we're going to put berries in and everything. But our, my philosophy is to, to do things small and do them well. You know, you don't need, when you, the, the more space you start taking on, the more work it is and you get to it. And we're trying to keep it within our family scale because when, as you get bigger and bigger and the, and the demand for labor and everything gets higher, then you have to look at starting to, to hire people. And uh, honestly, after 25 years, there's just not a lot of people out there that want to work and, and, and the people that you can find to work if it, it's, you have to find somebody who's really interested to do a good job, to really in, in, invest themselves in the process and to know, you know, want to know how this is supposed to be done so that they can um, do a good job for you. So a lot of people, want, I should say, a lot of people want to work. Uh, well, they, a lot of people want a paycheck. They just don't want to work for it. So that's not, that's not to say that we're not interested in helping people learn. That, was, that would be one of the things we want to do. We're trying to get infrastructure in so we can do that. But um, we would rather take somebody on and, and like train them instead of hiring people and, and uh, trying to work at that scale. But look, there's more than enough people making huge amounts of money off of an acre, acre and a half. A family should be easily able, able to support themselves and have surplus left over to use for other means at, at a small scale like that. That's not to say if somebody's using, doing larger acreages or whatever. You just have to pick what scale you're going to be at because everything, you, every decision you have is going to be dependent on that, like what kind of equipment you're going to get and, and how you're going to manage it and what kind of crop you're going to grow. You know, if it's a labor-intensive crop and you start going up to five acres or ten acres or something on a labor-intensive crop, there's no way you're going to handle it as a family. One of the things we decided to do with berries you know, berries are labor-intensive, like blueberries and raspberries and picking. One of the things we do to spread it out, so, you know, if you're preparing for a market, you've got to go, I, I mean, I've been in a situation out in Eden Valley where we're, we're picking 500 pints of raspberries to go to a, a market. And that takes a lot of people to, to get that done in a short period of time. But we spread it out, and what we do is we just freeze the fruit and rather than go to the market and sell ice cream, we go to the market and sell a, like a fruit ice or something like that. We'll take frozen pears, which works well with fruit to keep, let the fruit express itself. Bananas work okay too, but then you get a lot more stronger banana flavor with it. But you can take it to the market and sell that. And people are uh, willing to pay more for prepared stuff than they are for unprepared stuff. And so we can spread our labor out over a wider stretch of time and, and still be able to market that. We're also hoping to get a commercial kitchen, uh, certified kitchen, so that we can preserve some of that and sell it, so then we can sell it over a longer period of time, rather than having to try to squeeze it all in and get all that labor. But these are the kind of decisions you have to make about you know, what scale are you gonna be at, what are you gonna grow, and what's it gonna take to do that in order to do it successfully. Um, okay, 
So we, we looked at light and some of the aspect, issues with light. Not enough light, which we talked about in the last session, somebody was asking about using sugars to, to enhance the energy. In low light levels, you're not going to be photosynthesizing at optimum levels. And if you have a prolonged period of low light, uh, that's going to that's put more time on your production time. And so you need to be mindful of whatever you can do to maximize. Like we have broccoli and, and kale and stuff growing in our high tunnel right now for us. And we have covers on it. So in the wintertime, we have a second floating rope, a hoop bed with covers on it to give it an extra layer in the wintertime. And we can, we grow stuff through the winter for us, ourselves, cool weather stuff. We don't try to grow uh, summer, you know, warm weather stuff like tomatoes and stuff like that. We evaluated the cost of that. It would cost so much money to do that. And when you get into the shorter time of season, this is another issue with the light, is the time of year that you're in. And if you're going to try growing over winter and the daylight, the day length gets really short, the sun is low in the sky, um, your plants go into this like um, slowdown mode. And, and so you're barely getting, you know, you're, unless you want to then you have to start spending money on lights and stuff like that. And you're, you're going to, you know, just thousands of dollars in, in heating expense and operating expense and everything like that. I read an interesting point that the, all you have to do is turn your lights on for about one hour in the middle of the night by two or three in the morning. And it just, plants just keep going on with it. Well, they keep going on thinking it's, you know, it's time to grow. The problem is they're not getting enough light to photosynthesize fast enough. that one hour just really makes up for a lot. It was an yeah. interesting article. Yeah, it'd be interesting to read it. Yeah. So you have to be, you know, you realize you're, that if you're going to grow on into the fall or winter as your day length is getting shorter, that everything's just slowing down and it's not going to be as productive. And so we did the math on it. It just, for the amount of work that it would take, you know, if you're a commercial greenhouse and you're growing and supplying a commercial customer and everything, you need to keep continuity, then, then uh, that's a different story. But um, Temperature. You know, too warm, too cold. Again, you can use climate modification for that. What's the problem is when it's too warm and then too cold, like in the spring and the fall. We have a lot more of this uh, up in Kentucky than we did in Colorado. It was either it was either colder or wasn't as it worked its way out in, into the fall or into the spring. Whereas here, we've had these really warm stretches, and then it goes into these really cold stretches, and that's really hard on plants because they're not sure they're supposed to come out. Is the sap supposed to start flowing here? And then it stops flowing the sap, or they start flowing the sap and it gets cold and it damages the tree because the sap freezes uh, it, underneath the, the bark or whatever. Um, so you have to take into consideration, and these things are getting more erratic, like I said. So you have to take into consideration what season you're growing in and, and whether they're going to need protection. By the way, this is a, I'll give you a good illustration of how the soil, a good, healthy soil, mineralized soil will, will buffer this. If your, if your uh, plants are highly mineralized, the freezing point is lowered from 32. They won't be damaged. You can go down sometimes as low as 25 degrees and uh, they, they won't be damaged by frost. And so that's one good way. If you've got uh, tree fruit that's going to blossom potentially early, that's, a, that's one of the problems they have in this part of the country is when you get that erratic stuff like that and you're those trees that want to, they have a low chill requirement, which is they have to have so many cold hours below a certain temperature. And once they get those hours, then they're ready to grow. And so if they have a low chill requirement, 
they may be ready to go early and, and uh, you get that bounce like that. And so if you can uh, put, get that freezing point down lower, then you're more likely to get a crop off of like cherries and apricots, something like that that's gonna, gonna bl bloom early and potentially be lost or peaches, those type of things. And like I said, these things are, this, the, the, the variability on all this stuff is getting worse. The, there is climate change going on, it's just not the way it's represented, but there is more, it's instability. And the buffers in nature are being destroyed, and as a result, you know, where does wind come from? Wind comes from temperature variation. And where does temperature variation come from? Temperature variation comes from, from moisture variation. And moisture variation comes from, from lack of vegetation or vegetation. Moist, vegetation and the moisture that holds is a moisture sink. Vegetation is a moisture sink. If you can stabilize moisture, you can stabilize temperature, and then you can stabilize wind. But that's all becoming more erratic because it's becoming unstable. And so you're having all of these you know, wide swings. And you see the same thing in people. No, I mean, I do where you've got these wide swings in behavior and emotions and, and everything else, because the same thing, the buffers are being destroyed in, the, in, in, the, in your body, in your mind, in, in your, physically in your body. And so you're getting more and more erratic swings. Nobody, whenever I hear people talking about climate change, they're not talking about those things. They're talking about uh, charging you carbon credits to, to, um, for another tax. Okay, uh, so this, this is kind of going to be the same, the same picture for each one of these, these, these issues. Moisture, you know, too much, too little. Another way that the soil buffers moisture is one, by developing good porosity there, you develop good drainage of that soil. So excess moisture will drain on through and minimize the, the risk of, you know, having your roots standing in water because the, the soil is waterlogged. Uh, and um, humus is a tremendous water-holding material. You can hold a 5% humus content can hold 5 to 6 inches of rain. It just soaks it up. So can you see if you went into a, a month-long drought, but you had 5 to 6 inches of water stored up, at least in your humus content, that can be released back out, how that would buffer that erratic situation, and that's, that's what happens. That's the type of thing that happens. And now if you have a humus content of 1% or 1.5%, you're, you're not gonna get as much of a benefit off of that. Another interesting thing um, that I don't have up here, it's a buffer. When, when seeds are sown and they germinate, they send out suppressants hormonal suppressants out of the roots that suppress any other seeds germinating around them. In a typical soil, how long do you think that effect lasts? It lasts a few days. How long do you think it lasts in a healthy soil? It lasts about four to six weeks in a healthy soil. That gives the plant a tremendous head start on suppressing competition, um, but when you don't have those kind of conditions, then you don't get that advantage for very long. It just does, the, uh, the strength of that suppressant is just not sufficient to, to um, carry that. Okay, so wind, we talked about the same thing. Wind, out in Colorado, we had tremendous, we had wind every day. It was just normal. 
and you were surprised when you didn't have wind. Not, not as big of a deal here. So you can see where your location is and where you're trying to farm. These things are going to be different. Uh, wind is desiccating to a plant. It can also be, if it's not too hard, it can be beneficial because if you've got a high humidity, then it helps to re reduce the humidity in the canopy of the plant. It also helps to bring in fresh air into the canopy to br bring in fresh supplies of CO2 in there. Um, by the way, the, the CO2 level in the soil, in a well, uh, uh, soil with plenty of humus in it, uh, I'm trying to remember the unit of measure, it's about three to, three to 5,000. I'll just give you the numbers and you'll get the idea. I can't remember the unit they measured in. But in a, in, a, in a soil with good humus content, it's going to have CO2 levels of three to 5,000. And ambient air levels are about 350. So, and CO2 is heavy, so it doesn't make its way. So it gradually makes its way up as it, as it t returns to CO2. It makes its way up out of the can and works its way up through your plant canopy. And so if you have high humus levels there, you're maintaining a higher level of CO2 in the plant canopy, so you get more, much more rapid growth that way. Where's all that coming from? Bacteria? It, well, no, it's coming from the breakdown of organic matter in the soil. But you know what? What's that? But that's bacteria that breaks it down, right? In the soil? Yeah, bacteria, fungi. Bacteria tend to break down simpler compounds. Fungi tend to break down more complicated, you know, more difficult ones to break down. So the, the bacteria will break down sugars and uh, some carbohydrates, whereas the, the fungi will break down fats like we, we saw earlier in that progression. Oils and uh, lignans, more, more complex carbohydrates, the, the, the fungi work on that. That's, uh, that's why they call the Smoky Mountains. Are you guys familiar with the Smoky Mountains? That's why they call it the Smoky Mountains. That's, that, that smoky color in the air is from all of the, the, the debris being broken down underneath those trees and the carbon dioxide coming up out of the, out of the canopy. That's what gives it that, that bluish kind of hue because of increased concentration. Yeah, good potassium levels and good CO2 levels. What he was saying was that uh, with, if you have good CO2 levels, the stomata don't open as far. And, and so you get better water use. You still get transpiration, but you get water, you, less water is being transpired, so you get better, best, better water use efficiency, plus you're taking up more CO2 to get more photosynthesis. So you don't have to transpire as heavy in order to, to get the better photosynthesis. Okay, and, and the last one I put on here was pressure, barometric pressure. Barometric pressure, it, it's subtle enough. Anybody that's had a knee injury or something like that or has arthritis, my daughter, in her brilliance, they were told not to jump from bed to bed. We had bunk beds and everything, and she chose to jump from the top of the bunk bed over to her bed one time and missed and hit the metal frame on the bottom and ripped her knee open and, and uh, had to have it all sewed up and everything. But... Ever since then, you know, you get scar tissue in there, and when the barometric pressure changes, you can always, anybody with those types of things, their, their joints start to ache, or their, their injuries like that start to ache and everything. So they feel that change, even though we don't necessarily feel that subtle change consciously, it happens, and the same thing happens to plants, and so as you get those, it, it, when you get the higher pressure, it pushes 
pushes down more on the on the soil and pushes air down into there. And when you when it lightens up, then it, it I mean, it, it compacts it. And so you have higher density. It's like a turbocharger. I mean, it kind of compact compresses the air a little bit more, and you have higher density. Whereas when it's a lower barometric pressure, it releases up on that and it thins out the the pressure. This is this is a subtle thing that you know, it's it's yeah. Go ahead. I haven't done I haven't done any research on changing the size of the air, and I haven't I, I don't know anybody that's that's com commented about that. But the reason that's put down there is to allow that soil to breathe. It creates like a lung effect where air can go up and down, and that's that's what you want air exchange in the soil. I'm just curious so. whether a different size would increase that or not. It might. It might. I don't know. Well, this heating of the heating of the atmosphere—that's where you get wind from. If you don't have the moisture to absorb, moisture absorbs heat, and it can absorb a tremendous amount of heat. And that also buffers temperature, by the way. That's why a moisture sink is so valuable. Is it can absorb heat, and so it'll absorb a lot of heat, which will reduce wind. And then that heat is given off at night, back off at night, and that buffers the temperature, and that helps to reduce the. the Yeah, because solar heating, although that's buffered too, because what, what does the, the air exchange is more gravitational pull and barometric pressure as it expands and contracts. It. But the, it's, it's really the, the gravitational pull and which, which gravitational pull has more influence. Does the Earth gravitation, the Earth's gravitation pulling heavier and so pulling it down, or is it the Moon's gravitation that's pulling up on it and pulling it up? It's like tides with the water. Well, air just, air just does the same thing. So it, it pulls, pulls it up and down. By the way, that's a, uh, another side. Uh, have any of you ever heard of planting by the moon? Or planting by moon signs? Well, there's a legitimate science to that. There's, an, there's another side of it, too. But I'll just give you the legitimate side of it. The, the scientific side of it is is that gravitational pull. When you sow seeds, you can, there, there's short germination seeds, medium germination, long germination. If you time when you sow them, so when they germinate, you want the Earth's gravitational pull dominating to get a root established, because it'll, it'll encourage the roots to grow down. And as the moon cycle cycles around and the, and the lunar gravity starts pulling heavier, then it encourages top growth. And so you get, you get more top growth at that point. And that's what planting by the moon the moon is, it's, it's not some zodiac signs or you know, some of this other stuff that people have added on to it. It's just a, it's a, a physical phenomena that, that actually helps encourage the right, you want to establish a good root system first, and then if you time, if they're short, medium, or long term, you just time it so that it hits those cycles the way that you want it to. This is a one, I call it a one percenter. There's, there's more basic fundamental things that need to be done, addressed first, but as you start refining things, you can add these little things in. It, it may gain you a, a couple days, a few days uh, in growth time, and so that you come in a little bit earlier because you got them up and out better. And so it's coming out of around a quarter Well, as the, as the moon is waxing or waning, it, yeah. that's really the, the, in, the gravitational influence of how it's, 
how it's pulling in. The same thing that affects tides, why it pulls the tide in and why it lets it out. And it's, a, it's a real physical phenomenon. It has a real physical impact. Um, the rest of this stuff, I, you know, people have to decide what they think of that on their own. But, uh, you know, the real science of, of that part of it is, is that there, the, so, the influence of gravity. The, the, the almanac for the moon signs and everything. If they, if they correlate it to that, John Jevons in his book, How to Grow More Vegetables, I don't know if any of you have seen that book, um, has it more correct with you know, actually knowing what the lunar cycle is and, and everything. Okay, the other, the other thing you have to be concerned about is contaminants. You, you know, they blow in with the wind, they come in the water, in the rain, they come in the, uh, the, the surface water that, you know, waterways that you might be utilizing to irrigate with. Some of them you're not going to have any control over at all. But like I said in one of the other classes, you're, you're not going to want to buy a piece of land that's downwind from some major industrial complex that's generating massive amounts of contaminants because I can assure you that you're going uh, to have problems. Further west you go, I honestly, I said somebody this, and I don't mean anything derogatory about the East, but I think that the, east, the Eastern part of the U.S. is sick. <laughs> you go you further out into the West where you get away from a lot of the industrial stuff and everything, and the air is cleaner and fresher, and um, I went to pick up a tractor in Southeast Minnesota, and as I was driving up there through Iowa, and, and on, even though they're growing GMO corn up there and everything, but they, you're getting away from industrial activity and everything and I was stopped in the morning at a rest area and I got out and there's a gentle breeze blowing and I said, boy, this feels alive up here and everything. But anyway, it's, it's just a, the further you go, there's more stuff falling with the rain because that's the way the weather patterns go from west to east. Um, and so you just have that reality to, to deal with is just to be mindful of that. Not everything you can, you're not going to be able to stop everything. That's why I say there's no such thing as clean soil. There are contaminants everywhere. There was a guy up in Maine whose family had farmed naturally, organically, whatever term you want to put on it. They hadn't used any, any of the pesticides or herbicides or any of that kind of stuff. They hadn't even used any commercial fertilizers on their farm ever. And he had read an article about the common blood contaminant, the, the contaminants that they're in most people's blood. And so he, he thought, I'll go get my blood tested because I bet I don't have any of those because we haven't messed with around with any of those kind of stuff. And so he went and got his blood tested to see what contaminants he had in there. And when he got his results back, he had 10 of the top 12 contaminants in his blood, even though he had not cho you know, consciously chosen to, to expose himself to those things. That's the sad reality of the world we live in. It's a, it's a, it's a world groaning under the curse of sin. And so the, the best that you can do again, is to make sure that the condition of the soil is such that you can preserve the internal environment. That's one of the things. Plants can actually go, if you, if you restore balance to the aerobic zone, then plants can actually put roots down into soil beneath it that is known to be toxic with heavy metals or other industrial contaminants, and it can exclude those. It can go down and selectively pull water, selectively pull nutrients, and exclude those other things. That's, the, the Bible talks about it in terms of the hedge 
being broken down, when the hedge is restored or the wall is broken down and the walls rebuilt, that's the character of God restored in the life that restores that protection, that selective control over what comes into the internal environment. Uh, so, again, that, it, it'll always come back, you're going to see it's always going to come back to making sure that the condition of that soil is such that when the plant grows on it, it that, that health is conferred to that plant, and then it, the immunity that it's, is necessary will, will protect it. And the last one here is vectors. What I mean by that are insect vectors that are going to vector in diseases and, and viruses and, and a variety of things. You're not going to be able to stop that either. That, again, at least I've never seen anybody build a wall high enough to prevent that from happening. You know, wind is also a vector and blowing in weed seeds onto your land. Not going to, you're not going to stop it. You're not going to stop, per se, you're not going to stop the rain and whatever it's carrying and stuff. So it comes back again. It's always going to come back to the condition of the soil. If the condition of the soil is such that, that it's fully balanced, then it will, it will give you the best advantage against every, every one of these things. You know, when the Bible talks about a thousand will follow your right hand and ten thousand will follow your left hand, but it won't come near you, well, that's what it's talking about. The character of Christ is fully filled in your mind and in your heart and then in the life. And that's, the, that's where your protection comes from. It's not from putting an armor on on the outside. It's from having an armor in the, on the inside to, to protect you from those things. So. Okay, does anybody have any questions about those? We'll, we'll leave it at that. and You guys can pursue that a little bit more on your own if you'd like, just so we don't uh, lose the opportunity here to... Okay, so we'll finally get to this stuff. I've been, I've been asked multiple times about the classes being done on biological farming and everything. I knew it was going to come. Um, in fact, prior to, prior to, well, we'll just, we don't have time to go into that. But anyway, I've had no less than a dozen people ask me today, you know, what I thought about all of that. Uh, let me just say that I think there's, there's a priority here, but it all works together. You can't separate out any one of these aspects and say um, that this is it and it'll solve all your problems. It, it, there is a priority though. And what I see typically happen is people want to avoid accountability. And what I mean by that is they don't want a standard that they have to meet, measure up to. And so you wind up having you wind up having people avoiding the mineralization part of it as a consequence of that. That's your, that's your foundation right there. Uh, you know, I don't know if people consciously realize that that's what they're, what they're doing or not. But after 25 years of this, I've, I've seen a lot of things and people get fired up about a lot of things. And, and I, I always go back to my biblical principles and say, you know, how does this fit with those principles? And I, I, I want to avoid saying that it's not important because it is important. You know, this is, this is where you get most of your benefit from. And so you just want to create the conditions so that that can function the way God intended it to function for you. Uh, so, so I would just say that I don't, I don't agree, agree with the idea of that being the primal approach, that that should be your first priority, but it can certainly be used all the way along it's just that you can, you can introduce biology to a soil 
that with, with poor condition, and it's not going to stick around. You'll have to continue to apply that. And can it help? Sure, it can help. I was going to show pictures. Somebody was asking me about that, and they were saying they, they were showing pictures of this side of, and, and then looking at the other side and how much greener it was and how much better it was. Um, I forgot to put it on the slides, but P.A. Yeomans, uh, his son, took photographs of, of pasture in Australia, and all they did was all they did was subsoil that one side so that it got more air. That's it. Just so there was more air in that soil. And you took, took a photograph of it about a month later. And this one side here was just green as could be. It, and, you know, it was about twice as tall as the other side. The other side was kind of a yellowy green and not doing too well and everything. And all they did was just put air into the soil. So is that a, you know, that's one of the first two priorities. And so if air gets down in there, the microbes can work better that are already there, making available nutrients that are there so that things can grow better. So uh, I, I, what I, I would just say that just be careful of, of the, the evidence presented until you put it in with the entire picture to see how it is. So, so it is very important. I just think it needs to be in its sphere in connection with everything else. And it certainly can be used all the way along. Okay, so this is uh, what's called the soil food web, and you'll see the different levels of it. The first level is um, the photosynthesizers, the grasses, and actually some of the um, um, algaes and uh, cyanobacteria, actually, I think, can produce some, some fixed nitrogen as well. They're the, the, the photosynthesizers. They're the ones that are the producers. They're the ones that produce the food source. We all depend on these producers. None of us survive, whether it's, you know, it's uh, animals or people, because we depend on these to capture that solar energy, that sun energy, and, produce, and store it, and then be able to have life grow from it. This is a, a good illustration of how we depend on the sun of righteousness. Without that, if you separate that from it, every, the whole other, rest of the system falls apart. God upholds life continually, and we have to receive that, or we can't grow and, and live. But that's the, the first level, is just the photosynthesizers. And then the organic, the, the living biomass and the organic material, the waste residue and metabolites from plants, animals, and microbes, are then utilized as food sources by the second trophic level, which is decompo decomposing mutualists, pathogens, parasites, root feeders. We'll talk, we're going to look at it individually in just a second. Uh, that would include bacteria and fungi, primarily, some nematodes. And then you move up to the third trophic level, which are the shredders and the predators and the grazers that would be protozoa and nematodes and arthropods. Uh, and then you move up to the next level, which is the fourth level and the higher, the higher level predators. And then the fifth higher and higher levels are the higher level predators going up to smaller animals and birds and then on up from there. Um, where, where the plant gets, works with this, this food web here is your, your first levels there, the bacteria and the fungi, they're going to be your primary consumers and then they're, they're going to, the plant, like I said earlier, they're going to try to explode those populations by giving them the, the food resources that they need to expand that population. And then as that population dies down later, uh, then there's a bank account built of, of nutrients, organic, organic form nutrients for the plant to grow from. 
And so what happens is as, that, as the bacteria and fungi are consumed by the second level, the arthropods, the protozoa, nematodes, there's more nitrogen, there's no, some certain compounds in those that is in the excess to what those need, the, the next level needs, and so those are secreted out into the, into the soil, and then the plant can take them up and utilize them as, as food. And then, of course, you go up from there, and the process is, is really producing the, the conditions in the soil so that life can grow. So we're gonna look at, we'll just look at them as individuals here real quick. I tried to find some pictures that were interesting pictures of them. Oh, the sun is, you see that very well. Anyway, this is different types of bacteria. There's a, I think that's a, uh, a mycorrhizal hyphae coming uh, from fungi, that one line coming through there. Uh, but these are different forms of bacteria there. There are nitrogen-fixing bacteria. The rhizobium that I talked about, which are the symbiotic ones that, that, that um, work with legumes. Then you have the azotobacter, the cyanobacteria. They all fix nitrogen. The, these two, the azotobacters and the cyanobacteria, and even actinomycetes, which you'll see down there, can sometimes synthesize nitrogen. You have the, the nitrifiers, the ones that are aerobic. They require oxygen. To, and they, they, they metabolize the nitrogen and they make it available to the plant. The denitrifiers are anaerobic and they actually cause a loss of nitrogen in the soil because they'll actually convert it back to nitrogen gas and it will go back into the atmosphere. And then you have decomposers, primarily actinomycetes, and what they're, they're, just, they're just breaking down organic material. Then you have fungi. The fungi is this white, you can't really see it in that picture because it's being, I watched that, but you'll see this white, filmy kind of stuff. Have you ever seen when you picked up leaves, you see all that white, stringy kind of stuff? Here, there, that's, that's fungi. You can see it, it's, it's surrounding, this is actually surrounding the roots of this grass, this wheat grass here. Um, the, the biggest lines are the, are the roots of the, the wheat, and you see all this white coming off that, that's, that's fungi there. There are saprophytes or saprophytic fungi. They break down um, organic matter. You have mutualists like VAM fungi that stands for vesicular arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. It, they basically establish a relationship with the plant root. Some of them are, are endo, which are the VAM fungi, I think, and, and the ecto ones, they surround it and, 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 and encase the root. The, the endo or the endo ones, the ecto ones, actually go into the cell itself. Um, and then the ericoid fungi are the ones that establish a relationship with uh, the ericaceous plants like blueberries and, and rhododendrons and azaleas and cram cranberries. Um, ecto go into the cells and the roots of the plants? Yeah, well, they actually kind of go in and around through, through the cells. They don't go they don't in. They don't, they don't actually penetrate the cell wall, but they go in and between the cells, whereas the others just en envelop the outside of the, outside of the, and they the root. Things the, the plant trades them, photosynthates again, energy compounds for water. They're, the fungi are really good at, at, at uh, foraging for phosphate and bringing it to the plant. And remember I said in one of the classes, people 
will get, will, like tree growers, will, fruit tree growers will, will be told to just fertilize, they just tend to fertilize the drip line. Part, partly for economics, they don't want to spend money to cover the whole area. But they're told that, you know, the plant roots don't, don't go beyond the, the drip line of the tree. Well, plant roots, the, the roots of the tree can go 50 to 100% further in the drip line. But even if it didn't, the fungi goes everywhere that, that, that uh, symbiotic with the roots of the tree, it spreads out and goes everywhere looking for resources. And so this is one of the reasons when you're doing tillage, you want to you be sure that what you're doing is what you need to do. Because if you go in and you just till up all that soil again, all of these mycorrhizal networks and everything get all tore up and, and damaged and have to be reconstructed. So you want to be sure if you have structure not to, to, not to mess it up. You don't need to go to till just to say you till. Yeah, you need, to, you need to check your soil and see what the conditions are and everything. If you've got to go in and, and tear it all up again, and that's why when I was sharing that, about that research with the squash, why they, you came in three weeks earlier, because you didn't disturb all of these, these uh, microbial networks and, and communities that had been established, because you didn't go in and didn't work the soil. So that's so. deeper than two inches? This? No, microbial network. Well, no, it's not deeper than two inches, but I mean, sometimes if you have to go in and prepare a seed bed, then you can go in and prepare the seed bed. You may do a little bit of damage, but you don't tear up the whole, the whole thing. You don't mess up your structure and mess up all of that. You know, disturb tillage is a, is a disturbance, um, but it's sometimes a necessary disturbance because you need to break up fallow ground. You need to you need to open it up and you get it. And, now, if you keep going and tilling and tilling and tilling, you're putting a lot of air into the soil, depending on what kind of tillage you're doing. Uh, I mean, this is a, thing that, a, a skill that people need to learn what type of tillage to do. How much air are you gonna put into the soil? Because when you do, you, you stimulate the, micro, the bacteria and they, with the, all the oxygen they got, and they start you know, consuming organic matter and sometimes humus. If there's not enough organic matter that's not humus, they'll start consuming it and you'll start losing you lose structure, you lose, you lose the, the humus that actually helps to do structuring. And so you want, it, that's why this type of intervention, if you just keep doing it, you're going to wind up like Pharaoh. You know, it'll eventually just harden your heart to the point that the soil will just get worse and worse and worse. So while tillage is necessary to break up and open up that soil, you need to be at the same time addressing the conditions there with uh, the minerals there, and getting the structuring, the porosity of that soil constructed based on chemistry and then, you know, hopefully you're getting it through organic materials and everything too and the microbes gluing and structuring things. Um, but it's, it's not just something that has to be gone out and done routinely without any thought put into, you know, while you're doing what you're doing. Well, not necessarily, because when you raised it up, you probably put more space in it than it, in it than it really needed to be there, and so it settled back down. And if the chemistry was good, it'll settle back down and it'll preserve structuring anyway. I mean, you don't want these big giant pot. I say giant. I'm holding stuff. I mean, they're you know little. You want to make sure that it settles down. And in fact, a lot of times, if you're planting fine seeds, you need to go and roll that bed and firm that soil back down. You'll see. You'll see. Farmers, when they're pulling uh, packers across the field to firm it back down to 
make sure that you've got a, you know, a firm enough seabed to, to uh, um, make sure that there's, if there's contact with moisture and, and other things. And so, so you can put too much base in it too, and that's, that, that's not a good thing. Well, you might every every you might every two or three years, you evaluate it. If you've got good structure, there's no reason. I mean, the whole idea of putting making a raised bed is why are you making a raised bed instead of just growing it at, at ground level. Uh, usually, people are making raised beds. They'll make the raised bed to get better drainage or to concentrate fertility if they've got poor fertility. If you've got good fertility and you've got good drainage, you don't need a raised bed. You see what I'm saying? You might need it that way. If you've got these, but if you're correcting those conditions, then eventually, uh, I just try to avoid work I don't have to do. Yeah. So I mean, if that's the reason you're doing it, then you know why you're doing it, and it just as long as you take into consideration the reasons why you're doing something and see is it necessary, is it not? Or this media was brought to you by AudioVerse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.